Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. Today happens to be show number 17. And what we're going to be discussing today is something called conventional financing. Uh, typically, when we talk about financing any kind of a home purchase, at least from a home purchase standpoint, we usually talk about conventional financing. Uh, which typically, by definition, I'll show you in a minute, as the book points out, it means that it's not insured or guaranteed by some form of government agency, but anyway, conventional financing. And so we're going to be talking about that today. So, uh, And as the chapters go on within the uh, book, you'll find out we'll be talking about conventional financing. We'll be talking about seller or what we call alternative or sometimes referred to as creative financing. And then we'll be talking about FHA and VA and CalVet, and we'll specifically be going into each one of the, the details of every one of those programs. I know we've talked about them in general in the past, but now we're actually going to talk really specifically about those programs so that you become more familiar with them. And then uh, depending upon the amount of time, as usual, maybe not today, but the next time I have a number of websites that have lots of really good material uh, that you can use. In fact, I may possibly even pop some of them up today because of the fact that there's some things in the beginning of the chapter that talks about things like conforming versus non-conforming loans. So I may show you some of that today even. So anyway, I'm going to be moving over here to my uh, old friendly document camera. And the first thing that I wanted to do was just, and as usual, I've underlined some things or highlighted some things that I think are kind of important because what's necessary is for us to get a little bit into the definitions of this stuff. So it says, for the sake of simplicity and organization, uh, the book has divided the subject of financing programs into three general categories. The first is conventional loan programs. The second is going to be creative financing programs, sometimes called alternative. Sometimes we'll throw into that category sell or carry back, but it means we're going to use something that's creatively that we create that's not a formalized program. And then government-insured or guaranteed programs. Okay. And down below here, again, some important things I think we need to know about. It says, since the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, was formed in 1934, Conventional loans and government-sponsored loans and certain forms of creative financing have provided the solutions to virtually all real estate financing problems. Essentially, when we talk about these categories, what we really want to emphasize to everybody is the fact that we have to use one of these various types of programs if we're going to actually end up financing the purchase of a home or, in reality, any kind of real estate. Uh, the only other thing that's not listed there is if you happen to be fortunate enough to buy the home for cash. And that does happen once in a while, and usually that usually comes up when somebody happens to be moving from an area in which homes were very, very highly priced, such in our area, such as the Bay Area or in the uh, uh, Los Angeles area, and they move to Sacramento. And if you couple the idea of they're selling something down there that costs maybe a lot more than it would here, and on top of that, maybe at the same time they want to downsize, go from a, a four or five thousand square foot house there to a, a smaller home here, they may actually walk in and have cash to pay for it all. I have seen that on many occasions, but in most cases, though, we're using some kind of financing program to work, uh, to help people buy the properties. Uh, goes on from there. It says, until the late 1970s, most real estate loans, conventional, creative, or government-sponsored, involved a long-term fixed-rate 
repayment plans. A long-term fixed rate, uh, uh, rate real estate loan is one that is repaid over 15 to 30 years at an unchanging rate of interest. Now, just to use myself as an example, the first time that I ever bought a house in my entire life was, I think I was about 22 years old, and the house that I bought, you know, it was, uh, was out in the Rancho Cordova area and here in California, and I believe I paid 16950 for it, and that was a three-bedroom, one-bath house with a two-car garage, which I think would go for quite a bit more today than that. Uh, at the time, the loan that I uh, got at that point, or the only thing that was offered to me, was a uh, fixed-rate 30-year interest rate loan. I think at the time I was paying, which most people would think is expensive today, but I was paying about 7.25% interest on that loan. Uh, the next house that I bought, same situation. It was an FHA uh, loan that I got. At that time, I think it, the interest rates had gone up. They had gone up to about 85 and again, that house was probably somewhere in the, about a $30,000 house. But again, fixed rate, not variable rate or anything like that. And this is all in the late, mid, early 70s uh, uh, or later part of the 70s. So the point here is, is that were they fixed rate loans? Yes. The idea being that you made an equal monthly payment that included principal and interest with the concept in mind that if you paid that loan for the entire term, for the entire 30 years, at the end, the last payment, the house was paid off free and clear. Now, since then, a lot of the programs they talk about in the book and a lot that you'll see on TV or that you'll read in the newspaper are all loans that have become popular over the last recent uh, years, if you will, mainly because of the fact they're trying, they're, they, excuse me, realize that, uh, that uh, there were, as houses started to increase dramatically in price, they realized that a lot of people couldn't afford the larger down payments, and so consequently they had to come up with some other kinds of programs in order to make that happen. So that's where you start to see that now. Um, anyway, so we'll move from there. The um, Going on, a few more things I have highlighted here that I thought were important. It said the uh, fixed-rate mortgage has been the cornerstone of financing instrument uh, since the Great Depression. I'm not necessarily sure whether I've mentioned this before. I know it is in the book, though, that prior to the Great Depression, we didn't really have, as we understand it today, a fully amortized loan. In other words, they had, like, interest-only loans. Those interest-only loans may run for three years, five years, seven years, ten years. And then at the end of those, they had a balloon payment. And what you ended up having to do is to go back to the original lender, renegotiate a new loan, and then just continue to make interest payments. Uh, as a result of the Depression in 1929 and after that during the Roosevelt administration, one of the things that the uh, Federal Housing Administration, specifically the Roosevelt administration, uh, wanted to do was to make it so that, you know what, we, we wanted to make it so people wouldn't lose their homes. And the idea was is why don't we make it so that people can make a monthly payment in which a certain amount goes to interest and a certain amount goes to principal, and if they continue to do that for 20, 30 years, their house will be paid off. They'll have it free and clear. So that's really where we started to see this to help the, the everyday consumer, if you will. Uh, after that, it's at, uh, and this is where it goes in. It said, however, in times of high volatile interest rates, the fixed rate mortgage is not favored by real estate lenders due primarily to the slow payback of principal and the inability to keep pace with inflation and the rising interest rates. 
A fixed-rate mortgage bearing 7% interest will provide a 7% return throughout its term up to 30 years, regardless of what happens to the cost of the money during the period of time. So what we're saying is, and I think I've mentioned this before, is that one of the, when you look at a fixed-rate loan, the advantage, if it's negotiated and it's a favorable interest rate to a consumer, the advantage to the consumer is that they know what their payments are going to be for the next 30 years. They're not going to change. They feel very safe and secure. They know that they're not going to get something in the mail tomorrow that says, oh, by the way, your house payment is going up. We're going to raise the monthly payment. So consequently, what ends up happening from a consumer standpoint, they feel really comfortable. On the other side, the lender, the problem that the lender has is the lender has to have that ability to look out 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And we all know that interest rates go up and down constantly. And the problem is, is that there are periods of time in which the, in which as the interest rates rise, the lender has to spend more, has to pay the, the people at deposit funds in their banks more interest rate or higher interest rate. And it becomes very hard to compete with that. And when they look at the fact that the income that's coming in is from maybe a lower rate fixed rate loan, it means that the banks eventually will stop making money. So, one of the th- one of the disadvantages to a fixed rate loan for a lender is the fact that they have to have some kind of an ability to look that far out into the distant future. The longer they have to commit to this long uh, fixed rate loan, the higher the degree of risk that they're going to have to take. Okay. Um, then after that, it says. Uh, if real estate is to attract investment money, which is what it has to do because it competes with all the other kinds of investments that may be available, but if real estate is to attract investment money, it will be on the promise of return yields that are competitive with other kinds of investment alternatives, meaning the stock market, bonds, whatever. This means homeowners today and in the future will have to pay interest rates that provide a similar return to the stock and the bond markets. Furthermore, because interest levels are subject to significant change over relatively short periods, it is re- it's reasonable to expect lenders to protect themselves by committing their funds for shorter terms, things like 15 years or less, or by offering a variable rate loans like adjustable rate mortgages. And again, when we start talking about adjustable rate mortgages, the advantage, the reason why they have a lower interest rate is because the lender has to, has a shorter period of time to commit to the interest rate that they're lending the money at. So consequently, if that's the reason why when you get a loan and you look at adjustable rate loans, you have a one year, maybe a three year, a five year, a seven year, a ten year. If it's a one year, it means that the lender lends you the money and at the end of that year takes a look at it and sees what the cost of funds are. If they're certain, if they start to rise, they can raise the interest rate. Now it's more complex than that and what kinds of margin or what kinds of, uh, uh, if I can think of uh, uh, indicators that they have to look at in order to know whether to raise the interest rates or not. But they only have to make that commitment for a year. So consequently, that's why on a, uh, on a short, on an adjustable rate loan that maybe is for up to a year before they can make an adjustment, you may start out with something that's a low rate of interest. You may start out with something that's 4 or 4.5%. Then then you're going to find out when you're shopping around if you, you have maybe you have a one-year and then a three-year. Well, the three-year is going to be not at the same interest rate as the one-year is. It's going to be a little bit higher because the lender 
has to take that risk for a longer period of time before they can raise their rates. So it's not uncommon, for example, to go shop for a loan and find out that maybe a one-year adjustable rate mortgage is at, say, four and a half, a three-year is at five, a five-year is at five and a half or six, and a seven-year is at maybe six and a half. So and the reason why the differences in the interest rates is because of the fact the longer the risk is. So kind of keep that in mind if you're trying to explain that to somebody or, or think it through and think why they would want to do that. Down below, it finally says, uh, the conventional loan is any loan that is not insured or guaranteed by the government. Okay, that's a conventional loan or considered to be a conventional loan. One of the things in real estate that we have to really watch is how we throw a lot of these terms around. Uh, typically, when we talk... Uh, if I'm talking myself and I'm trying to define a conventional loan, I'm talking about, in, in my definition at least, is this is a loan that you go to the bank or you go to the credit union of some sort, and it's an institutional type of a loan that has a process that you go through, That uh, and these loans are, are sold on the secondary market. In other words, they're set up so they can be sold on the secondary market, where they follow some kind of guidance or uh, guidelines to make them. Uh, so I kind of hopefully re define it a little bit tighter than that than just say anything that's not a government loan, okay? Um, so going from there, one of the things that I thought was a good chart in your book, and I'm going to kind of raise this up, and then I may in a minute take you out to a website to show you something else. But this chart is really, really important because what it's doing is it's emphasizing a couple factors. Now, I want to give you some orientation so you know what's going on here. This is an example of a loan that's $90,000. It's at 10.25% interest. You know, why they charge 10.25%, who knows, it's irrelevant at this point. It's just 10.25%. And it's a 30-year loan. Okay. What they're doing down here is they're showing payments, and those payments are based on monthly payments. Okay. Typically, in, if it's a 15-year loan, there'd be 180 payments. If it's a 30-year loan, there'd be 360 payments. Uh, this shows what the original amount was that was borrowed, $90,000. This shows what the payment is. Notice that the payment always stays the same. It never changes. It doesn't go down. That's the only constant here. Also notice that the principal balance, though, goes down. So that means that what this column is showing is that after you make this payment, the loan goes from 90000 to 89962 then after you make the third monthly payment, it goes to 89924 so on and so forth. So it continues to go down. This part right here shows of this amount that you pay, this is how much you pay in interest, and this is how much you pay in principal. Okay, so the first month we pay $768.75 in principal, in interest, I'm sorry, and $37.74 goes to interest. And you'll notice a couple other things if you step back and look at this. You'll notice that the amount of interest that you pay goes down every month. And you'll notice the amount of principal goes up every month. The reason why that's true is because the amount of interest that you pay is on the remaining balance. So that means that the initial payment would be $90,000 at the interest rate. That's what you borrowed, okay? And that payment that you made... Okay, this much went to borrow that, that money for that month. 
Okay, this month, this is what paid down the principal. Next month, the amount of interest that you're charged is not based on ninety thousand anymore. It's based on eighty-nine thousand. Okay, so that's how come you have this inverse. You know, as as you pay, the interest that you pay goes down, and the principal goes up. So you're building equity. And then this shows the ending balance. So anytime you're looking at a loan am amortization schedule, you always want to know how much, what is the original amount of the loan, what's the interest rate, what's the term, what, is the what does it start out with, what's my monthly payment, how much of that is going to interest, how much is going to principal, and what am I going to owe at the end of that pe payment period. So this shows right here at the end of five months where you started out owing 90000 At the end of five months, you're going to actually only owe $89,808.04. Okay? And all amortization schedules work the same way. Uh, what's important about it is, is that, uh, and later on when I show you something, uh, I show you a couple of these calculators and how they function. What's important is that when you're analyzing loans and you're trying to make a decision on which one to go with or you're trying to figure out how quickly you're going to build up equity, it's important that you look at what you look at these uh, tables so that you know, so you can start to take a look and say, hey, you know, after I live in the house for five years, I'm, I'm only going to owe this amount of money, so I'm going to have that much equity, or at the end of 10 years or 15 or 20 or 30 years. Very, very important. I also would say that that becomes important, especially if you've owned the property or had the loan in place for a whole bunch of years, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, and you're looking at refinancing. You want to take a look at how, you know, don't just look at the monthly payments. Take a look at how quickly you're building up your equity. So down below here, a couple other things. It says long-term, fully amortized or level payment loan has obvious advantages to the borrower. So here's some of the advantages. Its repayment is spread out over 30 years, is spread out over 15 to 30 years, which keeps the monthly payments at a manageable level. So you know what that happens to be. There is no, you know next year what it's going to be, the year after that, the year after that. Now the only thing that's going to vary in your payment associated with the house is going to be that, you know, your, your taxes may go up, or in fact they probably will go up, and your insurance on the house is going to go up. And if you have a, if you own a property in which you have a homeowners association, that will probably go up. But you, at least you know your principal and interest payments are always going to be the same. So that's one of the advantages. Second advantage is it's self-liquidating. It says it's self-liquidating as the loan balance steadily declines to zero. The borrower is not faced with a balloon payment of any kind. Very, very important. Uh, I find it absolutely amazing, uh, not amazing, but, you know, most of us, you know, if you really think about it, most of us, uh, you know, work, have a family, have kids to raise and everything else. And one of the things that becomes very difficult for us, either because we don't have the time or we maybe don't have the knowledge or the time to get the knowledge, is to actually start building equity in our estate so that eventually we have things and we own them. They're ours, free and clear. Like, for example, knowing that the day that I retire, that I'm no longer going to have to make a house payment is good news for me. So consequently, a lot of times, by me just signing up and getting a loan in which I make the same monthly payment for 30 years, I'm actually building an estate and not having to think any more about it. So for a lot of us, that might be a good way for us to go so that we know after 10, 15, 20, 30 years that, hey, our house is paid off. The next thing is, is that the principal and interest remains constant for the entire term of the debt. So if it's fixed rate, it remains constant. 
Okay. The second type of a loan that they talk about, and I've had, I've had these too, is what we call a fixed 15-year fixed-rate mortgage. It says a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage has gained increasing popularity over the last few years. And then it goes on from there. It says before the advent of the Federal Housing Administration um, in 1934. Let me see if I can continue on with that. 1934, uh, a home loan normally was made for a period of five years, seven, or 15 years. However, most of these loans involve partial or no amortization meaning that you ended up with a balloon payments at the conclusion of the loan. Now, the again, what they're talking about specifically here, they're talking about your the loan that you're getting is not going to be for uh, 30 years. It's going to be for 15 years. It's going to be fully amortized, meaning that if you pay it for 15 years, you're going to, at the end of 15 years, you're going to have to have, you're going to have it completely paid off. Now, there are certain advantages to 15-year loans. The first thing is, is that it builds equity in the property quicker. Now, your house payment is higher, but you're building equity in the property quicker. Uh, so some of the advantages you would have, and I'll mention a couple of them here. Uh, in fact, I have, a, I have a chart here. There's a chart on one of these pages I'll show you here. Let me show you this chart. I think it's right here. Okay, Here's the chart they show you in the book. And what they're doing here so that you can get some kind of a comparison is that they're showing you that you have, you, they're giving you an example of different types of mortgages. So they're saying here's a mortgage that's a $70,000 mortgage. Here's one that's a hundred and here's one that's 125000 What they're doing here is they're showing you the first top bar here is if you made the payments for 30 years. This one is showing for 15. This one here is 100,000 for 30 years. This is for 15, and this is 30 years, and this is 15. Okay. In fact, I may even try to blow that up a little bit more. Let me see if I can do that. Okay. Get that sort of uh, blown up. Okay. Now, what's important is that they show you two things that are important about when you look at a 15-year mortgage. Now, keep in mind that if you are going to have a 15-year mortgage, that means that the lender is going to get their money back quicker. And because they're going to get their money back quicker, they will normally give you an interest rate that is less than it would be on a 30-year loan. So they're using here this example. They're saying, you know what, if you had a 30-year loan, and you uh, and and you were at ten, you know, depending upon what the market is, but you your interest rate would be ten and a half percent. Okay, they're just giving you an interest rate. We could use any interest rate. They're just trying to show the difference. Now, if you look at it, the difference between the interest rate on a thirty-year and a fifteen-year is a half a percent. So that means that the lender to lend you the money at thirty at for thirty years is going to charge you another half a percent because there's a higher degree of risk they have. They have to commit make that commitment for a longer period of time. So consequently they're going to charge a higher interest rate. Now if you look at the difference between this, so there's two factors going on here. Number one is your payment is going to be based on the fact that you're making it you're making it at a lower rate of interest, but also at the fact that you're making it for a shorter or a longer period of time. So here they're saying for 30 years, your payment would be $640 a month at 10.5% interest. On the other hand, if you would have a 15-year loan, what would happen is you'd have it at, uh, your payment would be $752, but you'd have a lower rate of interest. 
Now, what they're showing here at the end column is how much you would pay over the life of the loan. Now, over here, they're saying, okay, if you paid all 30 years, your loan would be $230,514. That's what you would pay over 30 years. That's what you give the bank. On the other hand, if you paid over 15 years, it's $135,400, okay? And the reason why they're doing this is because you need to do this kind of analysis if you're making these kinds of decisions. You know, what is the best thing? You know, you want to know what's the difference in my monthly payment? How quickly am I building equity? Those kinds of things. This is showing you if you have a $100,000 mortgage, what your payment would be uh, for 10.5% interest for 30 years would be 915 and if it was a monthly payment for 15 years, it would be 1075 Again, just showing you the differences between those. So you as a consumer may want to do the math and say, what's the difference in my monthly payment? Like in this particular case, uh, here we have uh, 85 plus 75, uh, which would be $160 a month, I think, if I did the math right the difference between the monthly payment. So you would want to take that difference that you're paying in monthly payments and see how, how quickly it's paying down the house. And what you're going to find out that's interesting is that extra money that you're paying is, believe it or not, when you look at the amortization schedule, actually almost all of it is going to build equity. So it's really interesting. It really builds equity very, very quickly when you compare the two schedules side by side. So I think it's important for you to realize that and just think about the fact that you need to analyze this stuff so that you make a, a, a decent decision. Now, one of the things that's important here, too, is we talked about the advantages. You build equity quicker. Uh, you know, you pay the house off quicker. So there's a lot of advantages to the 15-year mortgage, lots to them. Uh, some of the disadvantages, though, and I'm gonna, I want to spell these out just so you know the difference between them. Some of the disadvantages is it says a 15-year mortgage requires a higher monthly payment. That's true. Also keep in mind that when you get this mortgage, you agree to make those monthly payments. Now let me really kind of emphasize that. Here's what happens is when you sign that paperwork, they expect to get a check every month for the amount of principal and interest it's going to take to pay that loan off in 15 years. That's like a forced savings account. That's the advantage to you that you're kind of being forced to go ahead, like pay myself first and pay the house down. The disadvantage to it is that if you, for some reason, something happens in your family, such as you become sick or disabled and you can no longer work or you lose your job or your wife lose your, loses her job or she becomes sick because a lot of us are dependent nowadays on both incomes in order to make it, what happens is you're faced with this higher monthly payment. Now, you can get the same kind of advantage, except for interest rate, if you, you in most cases, you are allowed to make additional payments every month. So you could get a 30-year mortgage if you wanted to and start making payments as if it was a 15-year mortgage and do that for several years. And then all of a sudden, if something happened, you could then go back to the 30-year level and you and you and your payment would go down okay so you it gives a, it gives you a little bit of wiggle room there if you're, you're not committed to that big payment every month 
So anyway, it says the larger down payments are often required to reduce the monthly payments. This combination of larger down payment and higher monthly payments are, has made it difficult for many young first-time buyers to utilize this 15-year mortgage. The people that use these normally are either people that earn a substantial amount of income and make the payment or from if you're getting close to retirement. For example, if you have absolutely all intentions of retiring, say, at 65 years of age, you have total plans of retiring, and you sit down with your family and your, your wife or your husband, and you calculate it out, and you say, okay, I know this is how much I'm going to get in retirement from Social Security and my pension plan, but in order for us to make it, we need to have the house paid off. You may very well, at the age of 50, want to have, if you're going to buy, if that's when you're going to buy, your, say, your last house, you may want to get a 15-year mortgage. Okay, so that the idea is by the time you get ready to retire, the house will be paid off. Okay, so that could be a reason why you would want to do it. Uh, it says, in addition to the homeowners, uh, this is one thing I don't necessarily agree with. I, 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 Pat, don't agree with this, but it says, in addition, the homeowner loses the tax deduction on interest payments sooner because the home ownership is attain, attained sooner. I never, never, never think that one of the reasons why you should get a loan or you should continue to make house payments is because you can give you can give the lender some money and take it off on your income taxes. That's stupid. And the reason why I say that is, is that you could take that extra money and many cases, usually especially when you're getting close to retirement, we have 401k plans, in other words, retirement plans, 401k, 403b, 457, in which we are allowed to make additional contributions and all of that happens to be tax deductible okay so if i don't have to make my monthly house payment anymore it would be wiser i would get the same effect of just taking that money and putting it into one of these retirement plans which now that's my money okay continuing to make the house payment just because you wanted a deduction to me in my mind and i might be the only one but in my mind is stupid I'd rather take that money if I don't have to make the mortgage payment anymore and put it into my retirement plan. And like I said, in many cases, some of the retirement plans actually have what they call a catch-up feature. So they recognize the fact that in the last number of years prior to retirement, they'll allow you to make additional or increase your contributions to catch up because maybe you haven't been making enough of a contribution in order for you to have an adequate retirement. So that's the way I think it should go. It should never be to get a tax deduction. That's I've heard that too many times, and that's silly. I mean, you could throw it in the garbage can and, and get the tax deduction. There's no incentive for it. Uh, lastly, because home buyers usually have the option of making extra payments on a 30-year uh, mortgage, I think that is, uh, they can choose to retire the debt early without ever being legally obligated to make the higher payments. That's what I was talking about before. In other words, you can take, in most cases, your 30-year mortgage and turn around, and even if you have a coupon on it, usually, and you want to ask your lender, make sure you can, but usually you have a little check mark where you can say, I'm going to send you some extra money, and then they'll say, where do you want it to go? Does it go to an impound account? Does it go to pay the principal? What are you going to use it for? And you can make extra payments. I know I've done it all the time and continue to do it. Uh, the next thing that we wanted to talk about in conventional loans is something called a conforming versus a non-conforming loan. And I wanted to point something out here 
to you, and then I think I'm going to have to go out to the Internet to show you a couple things. Um, remember that a conforming loan is a loan in which it's following the, gui- the underwriting guidelines as set forth by the secondary market. When I say that, I mean the, the basic place to start out is by saying, listen, you have to have an appraisal. You have to have a credit report. It has to fit our guidelines. The person has to earn this much money. Those are the guidelines. But in addition to that, there's a limit on what is conforming and what is non-conforming. Now, this is something that updates every year, and that's why I want to show you here, and then I'll show you on the Internet. Uh, it says, for example, so-called jumbo loans are loans that exceed the maximum loan amount that F- uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac will purchase. And they say it's currently $359,650. That is no longer that amount. It is now 417000 and I'll show you in a minute where that is. For a single-family residence, a larger loan, if it's a larger loan than Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac will purchase, that maximum loan would not conform to their standards, and it could not be sold to them. Okay. Now, I'm going to take a minute here while I fire up the old uh, Internet, and hopefully I'll be able to get out there. <clears throat> and I'm going to go to Blackboard. Let's see if I can get Blackboard uh, up here. And uh, I'm going to show you in the class where I have that uh, link. I have several things in here I've put for this particular chapter. And I'll go ahead and log in. And once I'm logged in, I'm going to go, let me just switch this around a little bit so I can get the text view right. And I'm going to go to this particular class, which I believe, let me go to this portion here so I can see it. Okay, real estate uh, 320. And I'm going to go to website links, which is right here. And I've put some more stuff up there. I have a thing in here called conventional financing. I'm going to change the size of this text here real quick, make it so it's easier to see. And uh, under conventional financing, I have uh, several links that I've put up there, but what I wanted to do was to show you two different locations where this information is. First of all, under the Fannie Mae website, also Fannie Mae Freddie Mac has this, but they have the conforming loan amounts. And I don't think I can change the size of this. In fact, I know I can't. But what it says is it says loan limits, 2006 single-family loan mortgage loan amounts, And what it does is it tells you right here, and again, I don't think I can make this any larger at this point. No, I couldn't. Okay. Um, It tells you, but I'm going to show you a chart where it shows you everything. So for one-family loans, single-family loan, right now, as of 2006, okay, which means it's going to change again in 2007, 2008, 2009, for one family, it's $417,000 for a single-family home. For a two-family, which in my mind would be like a duplex or a multifamily home where you're still going to live there, okay, uh, is $533,850. For a triplex, it's $645,300. And then finally, uh, for a four-family, it's uh, 
950. Now, I know you can't see that well, so that's why I'm going to show you this other link here that I think is uh, important. Let me go here. <clears throat> and I have went ahead and uh, pulled up what we call the historical the historical rates. So this will give you more of a perspective. And I need to go back here and change something. Hold on just one minute while I fix this. Okay, take me a minute. Just did this this morning, so I need to, under website links, I'll go down here. And underneath here, I need to change the conforming loan amounts right here. And let me go back here for a second, modify that, and tell it that I want it to open it up in its own window, I believe. Make, okay. No, I guess I can't do that. So let me do this then. Um, I will save this to here. And uh, I'll, do, I'll do that again so I know where I put it. Save this to the desktop. And uh, make sure I know this is historical. And I will go back to the desktop. And this is how I'll open it up here. I think I have it right here now. Okay, here we go. So this is the historical chart. And I'm going to make this bigger so we can see it on the TV. Take a look over here. I think I can still make it a couple more notches bigger. Okay. What's important about this chart, and this I got from the Fannie Mae website, okay? What's good about this is it not only shows you what the current amount is, but it also shows you historically what that amount has been. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down here and I'm going to just show you that this is this year, okay, which is 2006. And uh, just so you have some kind of a perspective up here, I'll just go up here and show you. This is this column is for one unit. This is two. This is three. This is four. And this is seconds, second loans. So I'll go down the bottom down here. And just to give you an idea how this works, it says back in, I think I might even be able to make it one more notch bigger. Let me see. No, that's not going to work. It. Uh, let me make it uh, probably about one, 120. Uh, I can't do that. One. Let me see here. One, three, zero. That's okay. See how that looks on TV? Yeah, you see that better. Okay, so this shows in 1980, if you had a single family home, your conforming loan amount was $93,750, okay, which is not a heck of a lot of money unless you're buying property in Oklahoma. Okay, uh, two units was 120,000. Three units was 145. Four units was 180,000. Okay, that was the limit. Anything over that amount was considered to be non-conforming or a jumbo loan. If you go down here and you take a look at some other years while we still have that uh, title there, you can see, for example, in 1990, in 1990, the limit for one unit was 187,450. Anything over that was a jumbo loan. And uh, 239,750 for like a duplex, 289 for a triplex, and 364 four unit uh, fourplex. Okay, because remember everything that people can live in, all the standards are set. Every time you read a form, it says one to four 
you know, single unit, one to four, or the, and that the owner lives there. So these are where the person lives there and rents out the other units, okay? Now, if I go all the way down here to the bottom, I'll show you where that, that, that statement was right in here. In your book, it said it was 359650 That was for the year of 2005. That's where that came out. Um, in 2005, uh, duplex was 460,000, triplex 556, and um, a fourplex was 691. And then this year, like I mentioned before, uh, basic rate is 417 before it becomes a non-conforming loan. 533,850 if it's a duplex, 645 if it's a triplex, or 801,950 uh, if it's a fourplex. Now, there is one thing. People will always say, uh, well, wait a minute. That amount sounds okay, but what about, you know, there's certain areas where it costs more money, okay? And so they have down the bottom of this little uh, chart, they say, for example, limits for Alaska, Hawaii, the Virgin Islands, and Guam are 50% higher than what those are because those properties happen to be in an area where, you know, no matter what, the property is more expensive. Sometimes you'll see those uh, those uh, rates or those dollar figures broken out. In this case, they're just giving you uh, a percentage. Virgin Islands was designated as a high-cost area in 1992 in Guam in 2001. Uh, then below, oh, wait a minute, jumped up here. It said, uh, let me get the back up here so I know where I am. Okay. Then that little asterisk they have over there in that right-hand column is really dealing with this. It says, prior to 1984, second mortgage limits were the same as first mortgage limits. Subsequent legislation reduced the limits to 50% of the first mortgage limits. Fannie Mae had no second mortgage program before 1981. Okay? So I wanted to show you, this is something that you want to be aware of, that it exists. You know, I put it on the website. I got it originally from the Fannie Mae website. And you can get it, I don't know, there's a bunch of different places, but usually Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac has this information available. It's always updated, uh, I believe, on the 1st of January. So what's going to end up happening is when next year comes along, that amount is going to go up. Now, how much is it going to go up? I don't know. I have no crystal ball to know how much it's going to go up. I'm sure they're discussing it as we speak or they've already made their decision. But what's interesting about this is that remember that if you have a conforming loan, your interest rate's going to be a little bit lower than if it's a non-conforming loan. Remember, there's a difference in interest rate typically between a regular loan and a jumbo loan. And it could quite conceivable be that when you originally got your house, your loan was considered to be a jumbo loan. And now what happens is now the price or the loan amounts have raised into the area where your loan is no longer jumbo. It's considered to be conforming. Okay, so consequently, for example, you may have bought the house and maybe your loan was at 417000 Now what's ended up happening is now this year, all of a sudden that loan, that, that amount is, if you were to refinance or buy that house again, is considered to be conforming. So now it fits that package that Fannie Mae is going to buy, which hopefully should, if you hit a double whammy where you were able to get a lower, you know, a lower interest rate and it, can, it was conforming at the same time, it could maybe help you get your payments down. That's all I want to really point out from that standpoint. So I'm going to go ahead and close out of this. Um, 
so anyway, we talked about the Fannie Mae stuff and the conforming loan. I think we did that. Okay, the next thing that they talk about that I think is important is they start discussing uh, conventional loans and they start talking about by standard, if you will, I've got to change my uh, thing for the people in the room here. Okay, by convention, conventional loans typically will say this, that they expect that if you're going to get a loan, that you will be putting 20% of the down payment down to buy the property, and you're going to finance 80%. Okay, that's where we come up with this 80%. The concept of of where the lender is saying to you, I will only lend up to 80% is the idea in mind is that their risk is reduced because if you put up 20% or put your money up, that's a huge that that can be a considerable amount of money. As an example, if it's a hundred thousand dollar house, if you put 20% down, that's twenty thousand dollars. The lender is going to lend you eighty thousand dollars. So the lender turns around and says, you know what? If you can put twenty thousand dollars down or 20% down, then you have a lot at stake. You as the buyer have a lot at stake. If you go to foreclosure, you have a lot to lose there's a higher probability that you will probably do a lot of things to prevent the house from going to foreclosure. And because we feel comfortable with that amount, what we'll do is we will will not charge you any extra fees if you can put 20% down or more, okay? You're not going to have to pay anything extra if you put 20% or more because you have a lot at risk. So what they do is they throw out a couple terms here. They say for many years now, the standard conventional loan-to-value ratio has been 80% of the appraised value of the sales price, whichever is less, okay? right? In other words, remember, 80% of the appraised means 80% of what an appraiser said it was worth or 80% of what it, sold, what it sold for being the concept in mind that maybe the appraiser came in and appraised it, uh, the property at maybe, a, uh, um, if you will, a higher amount of money, but you bought it for a lower amount of money, okay? That's what they're talking about, okay? So it's as if a buyer does not have enough money for the 20% down payment but still wants a conventional loan. He or she has a number of options, in, uh, a number of options including the following, and then i got to explain this stuff in detail. Number one, a 90% conventional loan with a 10% down payment. Okay? So in other words, you'll have where lenders will say, put 10% down, I'll lend you the 90%. Now remember, it's now you're putting down less money. So remember, there is no free lunch. Remember that I always say, there's no free lunch. If it's, you're going to deviate from that, from the 20% down. You're going to have to do something different, something extra. Okay? But you can have a 10% down with 90% financing. You could have a 95% conventional loan with 5% down payment. Again, no free lunch. There's something going on there. And finally, you could have a down payment of 10% with a conventional loan up to 75% and the seller to carry back a second for the remaining portion of the purchase price, okay? So now what they're going to do is they're going to give you some examples to try to explain what's going on here. Okay, here's the examples, okay? If in the case of a seller taking back a second mortgage, now remember this has to fit a certain scenario. The scenario that this would fit would be that the seller is having some kind of a difficult time selling the property. 
Most likely, it would be because the interest rates are higher. There's less people in the marketplace looking to buy homes, less buyers. The house is sitting on the market for a longer period of time. The seller needs to move, needs to sell the property, doesn't want to get stuck with double payments and says, you know what, how about if I carry my equity back? And let somebody else turn around and, you know, get a new loan, come in, I'll carry my equity back in the form of a second loan. So that's one of the ways they're talking about here. In this particular case of this property was, uh, so they say, for example, this property is selling for $120,000. Okay? 75%, which is what they are limited, 75% of it is going to get, uh, 75% of the purchase price is going to be financed by a brand new loan of $90,000. Okay? You're going to have a $18,000 of it is going to be in the form of a second mortgage that the seller is going to carry, all right? And the down payment that you're going to put down is $12,000 or 10%. Now, what you have to keep in mind is that the lender, in this case, the person that's lending that $75,000 or 75% of the mortgage is not at risk, is not at risk because what happens here is that if the person goes to foreclosure and loses the property, they're going to lose their down payment and the second lender or the seller is the one at risk. The concept here is hopefully you'll be able to sell the house for enough money to pay off that $90,000 loan. So in other words, if you buy it for $120,000, the risk for the lender is only, they've only got 75% lend on the money. So chances are, Theoretically, unless you, you know, you know, you, you, you don't take care of the house, chances are that you should be able to sell that house even if the market it gets a little bit weak and still get enough to pay off that first loan. The person that may get wiped out here is you may lose your down payment and the second may get wiped out. But the first is an okay position. Okay? So that's one scenario. The second scenario, oh, Anyway, so that, that was trying to explain that, and I'll go into that other financing uh, in a minute here. Now, the, this part here that they have, which is called the loan origination fee, what they're trying to do now is they're trying to break down some of the costs. And so what they're saying is, is that when you get a loan, you, there's a lot of costs that are associated with them. One of them is a loan origination fee. Now, they call these different names, okay? There's different names to them. Each lender will have some kind of a name that they'll utilize. But anyway, they're saying we take the same property, which is $120,000, or actually, uh, yeah, $120,000, we have an 80% loan-to-value ratio. It means that the loan amount that you're going to get is $96,000, if we take 80% of that. But you're going to have a loan fee of some sort that you're going to pay. Okay, That's 2% in this case, which means that you're going to pay a $1,920 loan fee. So all they're doing is, is pointing out the fact that uh, one of the fees that you're going to have to pay to get the loan is this loan fee. And it, again, it's called, diff it has different kinds of names as you go through it, right? Um, beyond that, they start talking about this secondary financing. Um, uh, the idea behind the... Um, Secondary financing, again, if we're going back to conventional loans, remember that the conventional way of doing it is 80% loan-to-value ratio, customer comes in with 20% down payment. We had other kinds of loan programs, one where we would put down 5%, one where we put down 10%. 
another one where we have the owner carry back their equity, okay? So all they're doing here is talking about, hey, you know what, maybe there's a possibility that you may end up with two loans on the property, two. So what they're doing is they're talking about secondary financing. It means you have a primary loan and a secondary loan, a second, okay? And then they're just going to discuss this stuff. So they say, conventional lenders allow secondary financing provided by the following requirements are met. In other words, where you would actually get financing either from the seller or get financing from another institution or even from them. So some of the things that they may actually say that this second loan has to have, has to have, is this, that the borrower would have to make a 10% down payment, okay, or they would not make the loan. Okay, so they're having some restrictions, okay. They're saying, okay, we'll allow financing, but the buyer has to put something up. We're not going to have the borrower, the buyer just borrow everything, okay. The second thing is that the term not to exceed 30 years or no less than five years. Okay, it's the second requirement. Uh, the third one, that there's no prepayment penalty permitted. The concept behind that would be that you don't want to have the person in a position where, for whatever reason, uh, they have the ability to pay it off and they're going to be fined for paying it off early. Okay. You don't want them put in that position. So this is one of those loans. If it has that, it's not going to qualify. Okay. Um, scheduled men, uh, payments must be due on a regular basis. Okay. So, for example, it says payments on the second may be monthly, quarterly, assembly, annually, or any other regular basis. The scheduled payments can be designed to be fully amortized, the debt during the term, or to pay interest with a uh, balloon payment at the end. But they need to be regular. It can't be like, oh, you pay this month, but oh, don't bother paying next month. The month. In other words, it has to be some kind of regular basis. Next thing is, is you cannot have what we call negative amortization in that second loan. And I'll read what that is. Um, in other words, no negative The payment on the second mortgage must at least equal the interest on the loan. At least equal the interest. Okay. What that means is, let's say the loan happened to be for the amount, the amount of the loan to make it simple. Let's say I borrowed $20,000 to buy this house as a second loan. And let's say, just for ease of Pat being able to calculate, it was at 10% interest. Okay, 10% of $20,000 is $2,000 per year. In other words, the lender has to get $2,000 per year from me in the form of a check or something. Negative amortization would be where I, my payments would be less than $2,000 a year. And, and, and the difference would be where that amount would be added to the existing loan. They don't allow that to happen. So in other words, if I was to make my payments and I was to pay so much per month, and let's say, for, let's say for example, uh, my payments would have to be, um, I don't know, I'll just kind of make it up. Let's say I had to make payments in the amount of uh, uh, $200 a month. And what ended up happening is that I didn't make that 200 a month. I actually made, say, 175 or, say, 150 Negative amortization would be where that difference, that $50 difference, would be added to the, to the amount that I borrow. And what ends up happening is at the end of the loan, I actually owe more than what I originally borrowed. They don't allow that to happen. That's called negative amortization. Um, 
And uh, let me see if there's anything else in here. No negative amortization. The buyer must be able to afford the payments on both the first and the second mortgages. In order, for, in other words, the first uh, the first mortgage lender takes payments and the second mortgage uh, into account when applying for the loan. So they take a look at it and they say, can this borrower make payments on the first and the second? They want to know that both of them exist. All right. Um, now. I'm just taking a look at where we are and where we are on the clock. Okay, now I think, um, let me see here. Okay. Okay, I think I've got this. Okay. Let me go over, let me just take a look here at something. Okay. Um, okay, so we talked about the fully, okay. The next part of this is talking about about a fully amortized second mortgage. So what they're doing is they're giving you some examples of what a fully amortized... Fully amortized, by the way, means that when you borrow the money, your monthly payments at the end of the term are going to have the mortgage completely paid off. Okay, so they're starting to work you through some examples here. So, for example, they're saying this. A five-year, $9,000 fully amortized second mortgage bearing an interest rate of 9.25% interest will cost the borrower approximately $190 per, and I think on the next page it says per month, per month. When, and then it says when underwriting a loan, the lender will include the amount the borrower's monthly payment housing expense would be. So what they're doing here is they're just trying to show you that they're just trying to show you when they make, when the lender is looking at the payments that you're going to be making on the house and you're going to be using secondary financing, they're going to look at this. They're going to turn around and say, okay, your first payment is $632 as a payment at 10% interest for 30 years and a $60,000 mortgage that includes principal and interest. You have a second loan on it for 190,000. Your payment is $190 a month. Your 7. Uh, 9.75% 9% or $9,000 loan, fully amortized, and that's your total housing expense. That's what they're trying to show there. And the next time when we come back, what I'll do is I'll kind of recoup that and go back again in that explanation because we're kind of running out of time to make sure that everybody understands that. With that, thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here the next time.